Hey everyone, my name is George Matthew. I am a managing director at Insight Partners, and I love my coffee cold brew, ideally nitro. All right, it's a little bit of a different one today. You've got just me, myself, and I, along with George, and we're talking primarily about how he sees the MLOps ecosystem. I love talking with investors. If you haven't realized this yet, I've done it quite a few times, but I like to see what their theses are on the MLOps space, how they're seeing tools coming through, where these tools are valuable, what tools are valuable to them. And George Matthew is one of the best in my eyes. He has done some incredible investing in the last two years at his time at Insight Partners. Some of the companies he's invested in have been Weights and Biases, Databricks, Fiddler, our sponsors of the community. Shout out to Fiddler. Gotta love them. Astronomer, the managed airflow solution, killing it. Landing AI. Let's talk about who George is for a minute before we get into this conversation. I said it before, he's managing director at Insight Partners. Before that, he did a little stint at a drone tech company. And before that, he was the COO and president of Alteryx, company you've probably heard of. They're doing some amazing stuff in the data space. He took Alteryx from the state that they were in and scaled them up to its IPO. And before that, let's just keep going back. He was at SAP. Before that, he held a leadership position at Salesforce when they were super small. So the guy's been around the block. He's a bit of a legend. And I am thrilled to have learned from him. We talk all about his thesis is around the MLOps space. We also talk a bit about what he feels is so enticing about enterprise software and why he's so enamored by it. And last but not least, we look at the way he likes to structure deals and how he thinks about companies when he's reviewing them. It's incredible to see his idea and his vision for these generationally enduring companies. That's what I came away with. I'd love to hear what you come away with, though. Leave us a comment or just let us know. Write me. It would mean the world to me if you like and leave us a review if you're listening to this on Spotify or Apple. And if you are on YouTube, hit that subscribe button. It does a ton to get this out to more people. Let's get into this conversation with George. So I want to know this because we are going to be talking a lot about the future. Do you think we're ever going to get to a point seeing as how there's a lot of this ML prompting and a lot of stuff right now, it's all the rage with Dolly and GTP3. Are we going to get to a point where we can just prompt infrastructure to happen? I can tell <laughs> whoever yeah. that I yeah. want X amount of pods in my Kubernetes yeah. cluster and that will just happen. Yeah. We're getting closer for sure. And it's an interesting question that you're asking there, because if you think about the nature of how serverless distributed compute has now arrived at scale, what the thing that people don't really talk about is how much intensivity there is, particularly from a system reliability engineering standpoint to keep that infrastructure going. So one of my favorite companies more recently that we invested into is a company called Shoreline Data. 
And Sherline's entire business is helping this exact problem, Demetrius, which is how do you automate no the challenges of standing up and managing infrastructure at scale? Hey, this thing's about to run out of disk. Like, how do we proactively deploy AI bots to be able to handle the complexity of distributed? Yes. But yeah, moment in time where almost the moral equivalent of large language models being used for infrastructure deployment at scale is bit by bit, brick by brick coming together as we speak. That's what, I mean, it just feels like we're going to go there, right? It feels like we can't not be in a place where it's going to be that easy to just prompt whatever, all of my different services to work together and it will be less of a headache than it is now. Yeah. It's funny that we're starting this piece of the MLOps discussion going directly into the infrastructure dialogue first and probably work our way back into MLOps in a little bit. But this is not necessarily a new idea, but it's actually one that can be better implemented at scale with what we have today with microservices, serverless Kubernetes distributed architecture. But Let's play this back a little bit, even, oh, I don't know, 15 years ago. If we think about where the scale of even 10, 15 years ago, a product like Heroku, as a great example of the last generation of infrastructure as a service, you can define a whole series of you know, call it dials in terms of what the workload should look like for the application that you might be deploying. In this case, early on in, in Heroku's lifecycle, they were very strong at Ruby on Rails applications. But if you wanted to just simply deploy a Ruby on Rails application that had, call it the temperature dials enabled so that you can build and deploy an application on scale, like Heroku did an incredible job for developers at that moment. And I think we're in a moment now where we have even more scalable infrastructure in front of us than we've ever had in human history. But at the same time, the complexity of managing exactly. it is profound. And so uh, kudos to companies that have been really attacking this problem, big and small. Certainly, you look at what's happened with HashiCorp and Terraform is an example of a big company that's attacking this space, but also lots of incredible startups that are earlier in the journey, like Shoreline Data. I think it is something that's a natural substrate to how the systems of the next decade emerge and evolve. I love it. All right. So over the last 20 months, basically, what, since COVID started, you've been deploying capital at Insight Partners. And you've gone pretty wild. Like you've deployed and I think I did a little research and it's been 21 startups. There's probably more now, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but I want to know, were these companies on your radar back when you were at Alteryx or was it something that you decided once you started becoming more and more in this space and you started seeing more deals and you started creating a thesis that I want to talk to you about in a second? Or did you already have them in mind and it was just a natural shift? Yeah, they weren't all on the radar when I was certainly president of Altrix. Many of those companies didn't even exist at that moment. Some of them were certainly on my radar when I was building parts of Casper, particularly when we were looking at a lot of image video processing and how much the deployment around deep learning models would be influential for 
really understanding what anomaly detection and similar use cases look like in, in video image related applications, at least for sort of that portion of Casper's business. But I, I think timing is always fascinating. And I think in this case, what we started to see, particularly in MLOps, was a moment where this important disaggregation was occurring in two fundamental areas. One is the core called MLOps toolchain itself, and just how much more important key elements of that MLOps toolchain were and driving best practices in terms of how an ML practitioner could consume elements of that tool chain most effectively. And if you look at the investment thesis, it certainly shows, right, how we've really been focused on the experience around some of the best of breed solutions around machine learning operations. The second was, frankly, just the emergence of the modern data stack, because the importance of MLOps and how you can now build higher functioning machine learning applications at scale using the MLOps frameworks that we see today could not have been possible in a lot of ways without having some level of taming understanding of the underlying data, particularly on the structured data side. Yeah. And so you started to see that specifically with structured and semi-structured data, not only with Snowflake and Databricks and Dremio and just the number of tools that have emerged around the data lake itself, but then the higher functioning capabilities that were built effectively on top of the data lakes of today. Layer into that opportunity just how challenging it has been to manage video, to manage acoustic waveforms, to manage imagery, and some of the most interesting Machine learning at this point is actually happening on, call it that, what we had historically called unstructured data. And yeah. this is where that opportunity was timing-wise great because you started to see the rise of this MLOps tool chain. You started to see this great foundation of the modern data stack that's supporting all kinds of data, but still hadn't quite figured out this sort of unstructured data realm as well. And so... There was just great investable companies at that moment. So I, I feel in a lot of ways blessed by two things. One was just the fact that was there. And secondly, that there was a forward-leaning, wonderful organization in Insight Partners that has historically just been long on the transformational nature of software at scale. We've been investors in software for well over 25 years and this moment in time, at least for, as you talked about, Demetrius, with this infrastructure being ready with the now the emergence of a modern data stack on top of that infrastructure, and certainly MLOps toolchain that I just mentioned a moment ago, all of these enabled the timing to work itself out to make those investments. Now, we still have to play it forward. We still have to ensure yeah. the, the amazing companies that that inside an opportunity to invest into thematically in this space can grow, can prosper, can build incredible businesses in this next half a decade. And certainly that's the other part of our focus right now. So one thing that amazed me the last time we chatted was I think I do just as much shit talking as anyone in the MLOps community about how much of a mess MLOps is right now and how things are very unclear. But when we chatted, it felt like you really had an understanding of things and how they were congregating. And yep. I was blown away by that because for me, I look at it and I say, oh yeah, especially when I was trying to do my research on the comparison side of the MLOps community website, where we put together a comparison of different monitoring tools or feature stores or deployment yep. tools. And it felt to me like 
deployment tools, for example, we have tools that are specifically geared towards speeding up your underlying infrastructure, something like a Desi data or a OctoML. Sure. And they do deployment, but they're like, yep. they're there and their their main value prop is something completely different. And so it's hard to say, oh, that's a deployment tool. But when I talked to you, it was a different story. Like it felt like you had things more clear, at least than I did. And so I'd love to break down when you talk about how you're looking at the space, what yeah. are the different areas that you see? Yeah. So it was us as a firm, Lonnie Jaffe, who had been doing a lot of work in everything related to applied AI, myself, Teddy Party, number of us were all thinking through this next generation of machine learning and machine learning operations. And what we derived was the following. There were still components and areas, and I think you described a few of them on a two by two that was going to be important. One was just where it stood in the overall tool chain itself. And I think we broke it down into three big areas of the tool chain. One was data prep right? Data preparation, all the necessity of being able to do the work for data preparation. Two was model development, right? And then three was then model governance and security. And everything we invested into could be put into those three big subcategories of machine learning operations. And then there was like the nuance that you called out, which is ultimately, was it called on the application layer, like the Roscoe's and the weights and biases and the fiddlers of the world, or was it in the algorithmic layer where the DESIs and the neural magics and the OctoMLs and the run AIs all congregated? And I think that gave us a lot more clarity because if you think it through, right, in that realm of what the, the capabilities provide from an application layer, specifically when it came to delivering data preparation model development and model governance and security. And then where did that algorithmic layer, particularly for model optimization, particularly at the end of the tool chain, in a lot of ways, and again, that's only because I'm drawing it out in a more linear sequential fashion. In reality, it is much more at the end of the day. But if I just draw out the sort of tail end of models coming into deployment, what we loved about the companies that you just mentioned that we're just talking about right now in the algorithmic layer, every one of them was taking a different way to really think about improving how models showed up at scale in large-scale production infrastructure. And in the case of DESI, it was just model estimation. And that was just something that, you know, Teddy, Lani, and myself just looked at and we're like, every model that goes into production is going to need just a stronger way to prune the model tree to be able to understand what is it that is compacted from a productionization standpoint than the full life cycle of the model that might be developed for the use case. And so I think what we're seeing here is a lot more clarity now in terms of what you can invest into, particularly as I create the sort of nuance between that algorithmic layer and application layer, and then cut across specifically data prep the model development and the governance security surrounding it. And that's generally how we've taken sort of the investment thesis to MLOps to date. And I would say there's just one fine grade nuance that we've also noticed is that the the tools that are now required for structured data are somewhat different than unstructured data. I'll give you a great example of this, right? I love that. I don't know if we need a feature store for anything related to, we'll talk about feature stores in a moment, but we certainly don't need a feature store for unstructured data, right? Because ultimately you have most of that 
captured inside of your labeling and annotation infrastructure there, you don't need a separate feature store at that moment in time. But at the same time, you might be less reliant on labeling and annotation when you're dealing with mostly structured data, where there is some feature management that's absolutely necessary. And whether you get it from a feature store or you embed it inside your database, that's an investment thesis that we can talk a little bit more about. But, but there's nuances there in, in terms of how you deal with the, the shape of the data that's actually coming into your analyses. Yes, it's so interesting to look at. And I've been saying this for a while and I have a half written blog post that I never released, but it was something along the lines of there will never be, like it's so easy to say that there's a modern data stack. It's really difficult to say that there's a modern ML stack. And it's because of exactly what you say, where whether maybe you're doing robotics and that's a whole different beast than if you're doing unstructured data. And even if you're doing unstructured data around autonomous vehicles compared to unstructured data when it comes to just like predicting cancer in x-rays or whatnot. And so those two are so fundamentally different and the SLAs that you need are so complex and they're each their own, they have their own set of needs that you, I have a hard time seeing one stack that will be for all of these. And that's not even when you get into something like the structured data and you start to look at the time series forecasting where you start to look at just like recommender systems, all of that. And I'm a firm believer in that theory that we're going to see a lot of segregation. And I almost wonder if it's going to be something along the lines of now there's like the term MLOps is too broad. Even though it is like the niche of a niche right now, it feels if you throw everything under MLOps, it could be too broad of an idea there. But I'm well, and you notice that I never have said MLOps stack, and that's exactly to that point that yeah. you, you made, right? Because ultimately, what we'll see over the next half a decade is that it is truly a tool chain that there will be elements that would be swapped in and outside of that tool chain based on the use cases that are necessary to solve for. And, you know, as much as we'd like to think that MLOps is niche, it's not. It's actually the foundational element that will fuel an entire generation of software innovation. And I think it will speciate, it will differentiate pretty remarkably, particularly in this next half a decade. Totally. There's going to be slivering and that's pretty obvious. It's already forming and we're just seeing the beginnings of it. And later those splinters will branch out and uh, we'll see what it actually, what comes to pass. That's so right. the, uh, the other piece that I was wondering about this, like when you're looking at the MLOps companies or you're just looking at ML tooling companies, is there a certain section or piece of the chain that you're interested in right now that maybe you have been paying a lot of attention to and you're like, ooh, this is really heating up. Yeah. Let me mention at least one that I really was excited by this past year and how that's gone and then use that as a jumping point. Future excitement is building. As I looked through spaces, it was evolving. It was phenomenal to see the tools were beginning to be much more built for the machine learning practitioner at their core. And the particular challenge of how you handle everything related to model building, specifically 
experiment tracking, the version control, the hyperparameter tuning workloads. Those were things that it was fascinating to see that there could be a possibility to build another set of delightful tools to the same realm of delight that we had built companies like Altrix and Tableau in the last generation of self-service analytics for the machine learning practitioner. Weights and biases really stood out two years ago, transitioning from operator to investor and thinking a lot about the future of literally this entire generation personas and particularly the memo practitioner persona merging in this space and what the sort of software tools would be for them. And even more compelling than me thinking about it was the fact that Lucas and team pretty far along in the depth of what an experience would be for a product there and proven itself out quite nicely in the last two years by all measure weights and biases has become a delightful tool that become essential to how a machine learning practitioner works very consistently. We get to hear that many folks in the space. And so thinking about it in that level of delight and that level of, of just fundamental, I can't live without this capability. I think a lot about that in terms of the next series of investments. And in two areas that I'm unpacking and trying to understand a little bit more is, and I think you mentioned it, the idea of time series, but just broadening that view a little bit more, Demetrius, like where does this realm of streaming data kind of play and how do we functionally build better tools to be able to do machine learning driven analysis, particularly against streaming data. And also involves a data management conversation and it also involves a good opportunity from a machine learning tooling standpoint. And so that's an area that I'm very excited by. I, I haven't made any investments in that area yet, but it's something that I'm actively looking at what's there and what, what could be exciting particularly in this next half decade. So that's one, call it sub-segment, that's exciting. The second one that's even more profound is that, and we thankfully also alluded to this, like the move that we're now seeing to go from mostly the world that we've lived in to date around training and being able to use supervised deep learning up to this moment. And now starting to see some incredible benefits and opportunities, particularly with unsupervised deep learning. And if we think through just the patterns of where large language models have evolved, particularly in this last 18 months and going forward into the next 18 months, we're gonna be at a moment where sometime in the middle of 2023, we'll reach a trillion parameter large language model. Yeah. I, I don't think we can, actually comprehend the impact no, of, of what that even means for humanity <laughs> that when we reach that level of parameterization in a large language model at scale. And then you layer in what's possible in terms of prompt engineering that can be incredible applications that are effectively built on top of these large language models. I'm wondering for you personally, what fascinates you so much about enterprise software? Yeah. I'll start with kind of enterprise software, but I'll kind of quickly dive into back to the areas that, that we've been talking about. Uh, I think for me personally, what I've learned in my experience of being an enterprise software person, I guess I can now say that I am an enterprise software person, having spent time at Salesforce and SAP and, and you got the track scale right Altrix. Yeah, it's at least in the in the blood at this point. I've been remarkably fascinated by the ability for enterprise software 
to not only drive tremendous value in terms of how it enables all kinds of companies across all different industries to be able to scale at a rate that they've historically never been able to without the use of that software. But what I've been even more fascinated by is how much enterprise software can continue to reach, reform itself, transform, and almost reformat itself in every generation. And that's what keeps me continuously excited. Because what I saw with SAP and Salesforce is actually not what we saw with self-serve products like Altrix and Tableau uh, yeah. when they got to scale. It's certainly not what we're seeing right now in the way that software is consumed and scaled. So that that keeps someone who's been a you know builder and operator and now investor tremendously excited by the potential of what we're discussing here. But what I love even more now is the tremendous human impact, the positive human impact that software has had on society. And I saw little inklings of it, even at Altrix in particular. I would remember when when I would I would go to our user conferences. They were incredible experiences of users whose lives were basically transformed by the use of software like Altrix in, in this particular example. I remember a dad who was also a data analyst. And he came to me and he said, I just want to give you a hug. And I'm like, I don't know you, but why do you want to give me a hug? And he's like, I just want you to know that the work that you and your associates have done at Altrix has enabled me to take to my son's baseball game on time on a Friday afternoon, which I've never been able to do for years because I was always wrangling with data as the last thing I had to do on a Friday afternoon. And it was just part of my job. And you just made it easier for me to have a home life again when most of my work life was consuming time that would have taken up in this case to make it to my son's baseball game. And those examples keep coming at you, right? And when you build beautiful software that really serves the people the way we had done in this last generation, and certainly some incredible founders are doing in this generation, that's what the transformative effect of software is on a very personal level. And that personal level becomes scaled out at a societal level. And that's what keeps me incredibly excited about everything related to software, even to this day. It's so funny, man, because I was just talking to my buddy Zaf earlier today, and he's a data analyst. And he told me how at his new company that he's working at, he's using Alteryx. And he didn't even know that I was going to talk with you. But he was like, oh, dude, it's so good. Oh, it's so nice to use this. I am so happy with the tool and just starts singing the praises of it. And then I told him, like, it's funny you mentioned that because I'm talking to George and George had something to do with that back in the day. (laughs) And so I mentioned that and he was like, tell him thanks. Uh, So, yeah, you you can't make that stuff up. You can't buy that gratitude. And frankly, you can't have a higher purpose in life than to delight someone at that level of just their own personal transformation being driven by a software experience. And look, if you can build one of those generational tools, it is a profound personal and professional experience to go through. And I happen to at least see it twice, certainly with Salesforce when I was early in my career and and then again at Altrix. But yeah, searching for the next opportunity, at least now as an investor, is frankly what I live for. Yeah. So you went from president of Altrix and you did a transition into drone tech with Kespri. What yeah. prompted that transition? Yeah, it was a wild ride going into Kespri. It was an incredible experience for me personally, because what I wanted to learn more about was just additional 
ways that enormous amounts of data could be leveraged. And at that time, coming CEO of Caspery, what was incredible to see was not only this sort of piece of hardware that Caspery had built to be able to serve at least the use cases of mining companies, insurance companies, to be able to collect imagery, photogrammetrically stitch that together from 2D to 3D, layer in insights. But really, it was those insights that got me excited because guess what? All those insights were using deep learning at that moment. And so we were some of the earliest purveyors of just applied deep learning at scale. The fact that you can ensemble a series of CNNs, RCNNs, LSTMs in a way that you could now perceive what the state and condition of, in this case, physical assets were and how they basically changed over time using anomaly detection classification techniques from a deep learning standpoint. It just taught me that there was like other ways to think about data than from my mostly structured data experiences, particularly mm. being part of business objects and Alteryx prior. And that just gave me uh, another kind of lens to think about the world, a little data at least. And I would say I was, after the four years at Alteryx, I was so enamored with what was happening. Like it was either becoming a, a founder or CEO, particularly in the world of machine learning, or to be able to help the next generation of founder CEOs in terms of how they were building their journeys. And it was a very deeply personal decision to not be a, be a founder, to be a CEO founder mm -hmm. and to be an investor. Because I just never thought that there would be an opportunity to still be as strongly passionate about everything that I just mentioned a moment ago and do it from the investment side of the world versus doing it from, oh, from interesting. the company building side. And it turned out like, at least with the opportunity that, that Insight and the partnership at Insight has afforded me to do, particularly in these last two years, is to be that profoundly passionate about the future of machine learning in particular and, and lean into it. And so far that has played out pretty well. So there are a lot of founders in the MLOps community, and I'm wondering if we can jump into some specifics of the deals and sure. how you go about looking at companies that you invest in. The first thing yeah. that we should probably figure out, what size, what round, what check size, what stage are you looking at? Yeah. Yeah, where where we have a lot of flexibility at Insight is that we are multi-stage in nature. And that has helped us be able to write earlier checks than many companies that are core growth equity. But at the same time, we're also not a firm that once you write the Series A check that you have to go find long-term capital somewhere else, particularly as you're a high growth concern in this space. So that multi-stage approach has helped us as a firm as we kind of work with the best founders in the world as they build their respective journeys. And for us, what we generally try to do is we try to be focused on the Series A and beyond. And that's where our present focus has been. We don't generally do seed stage checks. What we try to do is support incredible seed stage investment firms, companies that have done really well as investors in the seed stage. And participate in the future deal flow to, to be a future check writer, particularly in the series A, series B and beyond. So if you can look through where I made most of more recent investments, particularly in the MLOps and the modern data stack, it was, it was A's, B's and C's mostly centered around a little bit more focus on A's and a little bit more focus on C's because that happened to be 
where the opportunities were at that moment, but we're, we're generally stage agnostic at this point. And I generally try to be a little bit more domain specific in my stage agnosticism. Okay. I like that. Now let's talk some numbers and some KPIs and break down the deals. We chatted before. I appreciated an email that I got from you because I love looking at how investors think about community and how a community has value. And we chatted about what kind of different signals there are for communities like issues opened and just how people are responding in slack if there's an active slack like active members you've also got the amount of contributors that aren't on the team there's all kinds of cool stuff that you can look at but what are some just in general as you're evaluating kpis not necessarily community related what are the kpis that you're looking at when you're evaluating a deal yeah. And let, let me mention a few non-financial metrics, and then we can talk a little bit about the financial metrics. The non-financial metrics, particularly for an open source company, particularly in the earliest stages, you have to go beyond just the GitHub stars. And again, important, but you have to really understand how much stickiness and repeatability you're seeing in your open source product. And usually that goes into to more intensive metrics and more call it understanding of what the community is around it. We generally do look at how many pull requests are we talking about, how many contributors there are inside and outside the organization, how active is that level of contribution that's occurring, how quickly are they iterating and working through natural issues that would emerge in an open source project that might be coming about. And then once they get past that point of just understanding the basics of where open source traction is, What I try to do is I try to at least get into the first dialogue of what commercialization can look like, right? What is a natural path to commercialization Uh from this incredible groundswell of community forming around around the particular open source project? So one example I can use um, in this case was Metabase, right? So when we invested into Metabase, it was just very clear that the usage and adoption, particularly in terms of the number of downloads, the number of pull requests, the number of GitHub stars, the amount of activity that was in the open source community would be something that could be very readily commercialized in the years subsequent to the investment that we had made. And that actually turned out to be quite true, right? Because Metabase had such a strong ability to attract that BI user that just needed that capability of the dashboarding visualization that Metabase provides in a much more easy open source deployable manner than call it the last generation of tools that were in market. And that's where Metabase was finding a lot of incredible traction. And interestingly, that's where the commercialization efforts of Metabase kind of really found incredible traction as well. So I think I would like to see that level of understanding of where, if in this case, an open source solution can find community-led growth before you get to commercialization. When you get to commercialization, then a whole set of metrics kind of layer on top. And here, that commercialization metric comes down to how much are you bringing in a set of new logos, for instance, for new customers that are being acquired on a quarterly basis, and you're really tracking new logo acquisition as one key metric. The second is, if you've now acquired the logo, what is the annual contract value of that logo you've acquired? And frankly, does that annual contract value have an opportunity to expand 
over the course of the lifetime of that subscription where, you know, that $1 can become $1.50, $1.75 within the first year, few years of landing the first dollar in the customer. So that metric is the gross retention versus the net retention. So you're looking at trying to find businesses that have great net dollar retention. Some of the best businesses that we have happened to invest into, believe it or not, are now reaching 200% NDR, 200% net dollar retention. So every time they land a customer with a dollar, that dollar is generating another dollar. So it's like doubling within 12 months of landing that customer. So an incredible metric to understand the health of the business. So I mentioned the logos, I mentioned the NDR and the gross retention as well. Alongside of that, what you're generally looking for is a health of net new ARR creation, like how much new ARR are you generating on a quarterly basis? And then alongside of that, are you doing it efficiently? What is your cost of customer acquisition effective look like? But when you put that entire picture together, you have a pretty good understanding of how healthy a business is today, mm. more importantly, where it could go in the future that makes a good investment. And that's the kind of early view on how do you take commercialization from a community that may or may not have an open source underpinning associated with it and play it forward Mm -hmm. as an investable thesis. I love this idea of how it expands, like the contract value expands and really looking at it like in layman's terms, I just think people are so stoked using the tool that they want to use more of it basically at the end of the day. And you can break that down and say, all right, here's the numbers associated. And we've got some of the best deals. You've got 200% expansion. And that is that that's a great tool. It's sticky. People enjoy it and they're, they want more of it. And so you've got yep. something, there's something that's happening behind the scenes. And yeah. so I'm wondering, yeah. like, so, so I won't name the company who's got to protect the innocent 200% NDR as we speak. You can probably guess among the famous companies <laughs> we invested into. But just to be precise on this, that's exactly right. And you saw that in, in, in every generation of tools prior to it, right? If you think about why Salesforce in the early day was so incredibly powerful, was that once people, in this case, sales managers and sales teams started to use Salesforce, even at a departmental level, it had just a natural ability to expand within that organization, even if it didn't have the right. entire enterprise upfront. If you looked at Altrix and Tableau, particularly in the 20, 2010 timeframes, what you saw was companies that had a net dollar retention north of 140%. So for every dollar that Altrix and Tableau were generating at that present time, a year later, they were expanding 40 cents on that dollar. And why was that? Demetrius is exactly what you just said. It's like people were generationally delighted as data analysts to use a product like Tableau, or use a product like Altrix to solve their needs as, as, as day-to-day data analysts. And so finding those delightful experiences has a tremendous impact on where company growth and companies' ability to uniquely differentiate themselves in the space play out in every software category. And frankly, that has not changed for 20 years. You find delightful software and those companies become the seminal companies of their respective generations. Mm. And so how much does the last 12 months or the next 12 months valuation multiples play into Mm. the deals that you're making? 
Yeah. So let's talk about valuations for a second. I think what we see right now is a reversion to the mean as I think about it. And why is that reversion happening? Look, valuations got overheated. They just did across the board. And look, we don't even have to pick on private companies. Just look at the public company comps in terms of multiples and where they were 12 months ago, heck, even six, seven months ago versus where they are now. And so does that mean these are bad companies? It doesn't. Actually, it doesn't at all. It just means that the cost of capital was quite low. What was the best place you, you can invest into when capital is low? It's actually high growth. Where is that sort of highest growth that's possible in the investable universe? Well, it turns out that's tech. Where is it in tech? It turns out that's in software. Where is that in software? And you can kind of see how that plays out. That's why the Snowflakes of the world, even as a public company, had the sort of comps that they had. But now, as we think about both public and private companies, we've reverted back to where things were even well before the sort of upcycle in terms of valuations were. But it doesn't change the reality that you still have to build a great business. It doesn't change the reality that amazing companies that are forming now are generational in nature. And they will still be great companies, regardless of how the midterm and short-term cycles are for valuation. So what I try to focus on with the founders that I have the honor of working with is how do we build enduring companies that last not only in the good times, but also in the challenging times for at least in this Mm. case, valuations, but transcend that to just build great companies. And I think the ones that are now focused today on more efficient growth, that it's not okay to spend your way to top line growth, but you have to just get better efficiency, better repeatability in terms of how you bring your products to market at scale. Those are the companies that will do perfectly fine and beyond perfectly fine particularly as we exit whatever this multi-quarter, perhaps even multi-year downturn that we're in the midst of. So as far as you being an operator, do you feel like you have a sixth sense in when you're looking at a CEO and when you're talking to them? Can you, or is it just so far across the board that you can't really pick if someone's going to be an incredible operator to build those endearing companies? I think you get a sense of who are going to be great founders and frankly, founder operators that have longevity, but that's at least I don't have enough of a sense of fine tuning, at least as an investor to really, really understand who are perhaps the, the generational founder and CEO that could be present. What I try to do is just really understand is their longevity, right? Is there going to be someone here that will really continue to carry the flag long after all the hype fades away and you still have to build a company Mm. in the midst of all this? And frankly, you have to do it over a decade. And that's what I try to have a conversation with founders, particularly as we're we're engaging early. And I just want to just have the discussions like, hey, you realize there's another decade you have ahead of you on this. You're just getting going, particularly the Series A, Series B investments. And the ones that have internalized that, the ones that have literally come to an understanding that is 
their normative reality for a decade. Those founders, I believe, have just generally greater longevity than the ones that are like shocked by the fact that I just said that. Because I think generally speaking, the ones that want it find a, a faster outcome aren't going to be able to deal with the hardships of mm. the challenges of building a great company at scale. Yeah. Yeah, that makes complete sense. Uh, when the going gets tough, <laughs> then they're looking for the easiest way out. A few more on this. If you've got an extra minute, because I know we're hitting up on time, so I don't want to keep you if you have a hard stop right now, but I would love to pick your brain about a few more of these details on how you structure deals and what your preference is, what you like to see. And I'm wondering about like liquidation preferences for startups that you've invested in. What do those look like? So generally, we try to keep it as simple as possible on this, Demetrius. And I think the reason we try to do this in the simplest way possible, at least on call it the growth-oriented opportunities that we focus on, is that if your liquidation preference is how you return money and capital at scale, particularly on early-stage investments like that, you're probably... Someone's in the wrong conversation, right? So on the earliest stage deals where the opportunity has like a lot of runway ahead of them, I, we haven't, at least I personally haven't done anything beyond the 1x liquidation preference. Now, later stage deals where there's a pivot, there's a restart, there's some things to think through, there's, there's reasons that you want to st- introduce structure and there's good reasons that structure comes into deals. But I just generally try to shy away from structure on earlier deals, early being called the Series A, the Series B, because look, everything's still being figured out. Like, well, why would you want to place this sort of structure on top of the founder working through the journey of figuring out how they get their company to scale? I think there's moments where structure is good. And I think there are plenty of opportunities to put structure, particularly into later stage opportunities. But personally, as an investor, my rule of thumb has been try to stay away from particularly multiples of graph liquidation preferences, particularly on an earlier stage investment. And talk me through how many days it takes to go from that first meeting with a founder to the term sheet. And how has that changed since? Because I heard it was real hot back in the day, aka six months ago. And now I've heard it's cooled off a little. Yeah, so it has, the way it's cooled off right now is that time, as far as getting to a, a term sheet, is just generally longer. But I will say what hasn't changed for us personally as a firm is our focus on spending the right amount of duration necessary to get to the right decision with not only founders, but just the whole nuance of making an investment decision. So we would have still done the work. Like we don't go rifle off term sheets without doing the work. And that has been pretty consistent for us. And maybe other firms have had different experiences, but for us, at least we take the time necessary to do the work, to conduct the right level due diligence before putting a term sheet in front of any investment decision. And so for us, there is a minimum time box involved in that. And we don't take first meetings and set off term sheets. That has not been at least my experience so far. <laughs> And I have heard it happen. I have heard it happen. More power to the amazing folks who can pull that off. But yeah, that's just not, that's not at least my personal superpower. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little bit of a a crapshoot when you do it like that. But wow, 
And your words, my guy, friend, I, I, your words are not mine. So. <laughs> exactly. You gotta be wondering about that. But what if it's working for him? I, who am I to judge? So I think the best founders end up finding the best yeah, investors. And I think more often than not, incredible founders want disciplined investors around them that, that are there for the long haul because they're there for the long haul. Yeah. And I think that despite all of the noise that was in the market during this massive upcycle and the frothiness that was there, ultimately, as we've now started to, if more than anything, reverted back to the mean and seen the highs come to relative lows, what has been the constant is that as I said, great investors and great founders find a way to meet for the longevity of building incredible companies. And at least in the case of enterprise software, you have to think about it in terms of a decade, not in mm-hmm. terms of, hey, how could I flip this in a year or two and see what happens? Yeah, it's not a quick house renovation flip that you can get in and get out of with some yeah, hard go, money. Yeah, go into real estate if you want to do that. There's a <laughs> yeah. plenty of opportunity to put a great flip together in real estate, but that's not how software works. No. And so do most of your meetings come from referrals or are you taking meetings from random cold outreach? Most of my meetings come from referrals and there's a reason for that. I, most of my meetings come from honestly, our own sourcing capabilities. Like we outbound Mm, out to just about any and everyone that's doing incredible work in the software universe. And so most of our own, call it, ability to continue to grow and scale comes from our own ability to outreach to the best founders and entrepreneurs in the world. And I would say when there is activity, at least in terms of investable opportunity inbound, it's still referrals are probably the best approach. Here's the reason I say that. Like, at least with a referral, someone else is vouching for the thesis, the founder, whatever it might be. Someone's just putting at least their reputation in front of the conversation. And I think I just generally like to see referrals if it's not something that we're already outbound reaching out to ourselves. Excellent. Excellent. This has been Super cool. If anyone wants to get a hold of you, then I'll tell them to reach out to me and I'll vet it and then pass it along to that you. That would be hugely appreciated, Demetrius. Yeah, that'd be amazing. I love the way that you're looking at things. I love your thesis on and just the insight partners, like how you see MLOps. I really think it's super cool to see who you're, how you are really taking apart the space and putting deep thought into each one of these different moving pieces. And so I'm excited to see where it goes. I really want to thank you so much for coming on here and talking to me about this and really schooling me, not only on how you're seeing things, but also on the the art of the deal, as we could say. So uh, thanks again, George. And we will see you later. Well, man. We're all learning together and uh, certainly appreciate this opportunity to, to learn in this journey with you and these conversations and podcasts. So thank you again. I'm looking forward to future conversations. Thank you.